This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, Emma Shortus, who is based at the EU Studies Centre at RMIT, joined me in the studio to talk about the latest in US politics. Then, finally... Comedian and theatre maker Zoe Coombs-Ma joined me in the studio to talk about the encore of her comedy show, Bossy Bottom, which is showing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I've got first up uh, Ben Eltham from New Matilda and he'll be joining me to talk not only the week in federal politics but uh, tonight's budget the federal budget has been brought forward one whole month uh, because, as we know, an election will be called very soon. So uh, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg will be delivering his first ever budget tonight and it will ob- obviously be very interesting to see uh, the opposition's budget reply as well a day or so later. So um, there's much happening in federal politics and we already, as usual, have um, seen some of those budget measures already announced so we can discuss some of them not only uh, on the government side but also the Labor opposition side as well. Ben, you're here in the studio and we're about to discuss federal politics. Thanks for making it in. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. Yep. Yep. Let's uh, get into things. So let's get out of the way a few of the other items before we get to the budget. So In the past week, we've seen more uh, come out over the One Nation allegations and what's probably been more interesting, or at least in relation to Pauline Hanson, has been two elements. One, that she seemed to have intimated she was questioning the Port Arthur massacre and the circumstances of how it actually happened, which is pretty surprising and disappointing. And then also we saw the coalition um and are uh, about whether they would put One Nation below Labor and or the Greens in terms of preferencing at the next election. And this you know, went on and on across the week and we saw a massive cabinet leak which uh, really did reveal some of the key ministers and their positions, Kelly O'Dwyer being the most progressive in terms of saying you just need to immediately um, denounce them and uh, take action on this straight away but we didn't see that happen Scott Morrison waited until Thursday to make a decision make an announcement what was that announcement well I mean it's actually interesting to to see what the announcement actually was because uh in a sense Morrison uh is is supposed he's trying to talk tough on on preferencing you know putting one nation last but but actually the state apparatuses of the various liberal party branches will still make that decision and so i actually think they will still preference one nation in queensland for example despite what the prime minister has been saying well they've already said particularly the nationals that they would not uh, put them after Labor, that they would make up their own minds, certainly in Queensland because they're so threatened by One Nation's presence there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they need those One Nation preferences uh, or they're going to struggle in Queensland. And, you know, in some seats, you know, you could see a situation actually where One Nation gets elected on the back of beating the coalition into second place, for example. That's not without the bounds of possibility, actually. Um, So it just shows you sort of how volatile the political situation is. But let's take a step back and remember what those allegations from the sting in Al Jazeera were. I mean, we were talking about 
the senior chief of staff at One Nation, James Ashby, and the Queensland Senate candidate, Steve Dixon, going to America and spruiking One Nation's... Uh, basically spruiking for, for money in order to get votes that they would use to try and wind back Australia's tough gun laws. So, um, you know, on, on one level, arguably, you know, um, traitorous, I suppose, or at least, you know, certainly, um, you know, they, they expressed a a willingness to accept overseas money in return for changing Australian policy and changing Australian laws, which is pretty shocking allegations. And that's before we even get into One Nation's links to the far right, the well-known links between various parts of One Nation and the Australian neo-Nazi movement, Fraser Anning. You know, um, One Nation is not a normal party, I think it's fair to say that. They're certainly not. And uh, we saw Pauline Hanson come out and deliver a quite poor press conference in terms of um, the way that she presented her case. In fact, she couldn't even get NRA right. Oh, an extraordinary press conference, Amy. She stood there flanked by Ashby and Dixon and she railed against the national media, then proceeded to read out a list of media personalities that she liked, like Andrew Bolt and, <laughs> and Paul Peter Murray. And Peter Grester. Yes, Peter Grester. Yeah. Um, and then uh, left without taking any questions, uh, basically trying to deny everything, which is not plausible given what we know from the Al Jazeera documentary. And also claiming international or foreign interference in Australian politics because she says that Al Jazeera being a foreign media company owned or at least funded by another country must mean that they are somehow interfering in Australia's politics. Yes, I think the standard playbook from the right these days is to accuse your opponents of what you yourself have been accused of and that's been going on quite a lot indeed with the right wing of the Liberal Party as well. So we've seen in the wake of the Christchurch massacre we've seen a concern concerted campaign by the the Liberal Party and and their fellow travellers in the Murdoch newspapers and Sky News to try and paint the Greens as every bit as extreme as One Nation and to say to Labor basically, well, are you going to put the Greens last? Are you going to preference the Greens last if we have to preference One Nation last? Basically trying to equate the Greens with One Nation. Now, you only have to think about this for about five seconds to realise that the two are just not the same. That they, they, Even though they might be on opposite ends of the political spectrum, the Greens are a fairly, fairly moderate party with uh, a commitment to peaceful democratic change, uh, no obvious links to extremist uh, parties uh, or extremist uh, connections. You know, the One Nation, uh, in contrast, <laughs> um, is the, are the people who gave us Fraser Anning. So, mm. you know, I think that kind of false equivalence is very dangerous, actually. It is pretty dangerous. It's something that the coalition front bench, front bench got fixated upon for pretty much the whole week was talking about how extreme the Greens are, apparently, yeah, and, which and is why not the, really useful yeah. language. Well, by the way, why are the Greens extreme, according to the coalition? It's because they want to uh, impose... Take action on climate take change. Take action on climate change and because they support an inheritance tax, uh, both of which are pretty mild policies, I'd have to say, and neither of which uh, imply violence of any kind. Uh, unlike uh, the people connected to One Nation. Yes. Um, so let's head into some of the other items that are making the rounds, um, and they are somewhat related to budget time. The budget, federal budget, will be delivered by Josh Frydenberg tonight. Um, I think we should briefly mention Labor's carbon policy. Well, which I'm going to dro- get to that, actually. Oh, okay. yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> that was what Sorry, I was going to do. Sorry, you are the boss. So I am the boss, yeah. Ben. 
I will just answer the questions. Yeah, sounds good. I was going to say, um, given that the coalition has always already announced their climate change policy, or at least what we believe is their full policy before the budget has been delivered. We just saw Labor get in quickly yesterday before the coalition delivers their full plan so that they can get a head start and really put pressure on the coalition and make climate change a key election issue. So as we saw on the weekend, Bill Shorten announced a single-use plastic ban, not just on plastic bags, but that was the key focus. And they also then announced a range of measures around electric cars and also their plan for the National Energy Guarantee or a Plan B. So, Ben, why don't we head into that and then we can get into some of the finer details of um, the cash handouts. Yeah, so Labor dropped pretty much the rest of their climate policy yesterday. Uh, We've already seen Labor's energy policy, which is a, a reheat of the National Energy Guarantee of the Turnbull government. Labor then has bolted on a bunch of other stuff to their existing energy policy, which was a 45% decrease in emissions in the energy system. Now, uh, they want to now address some of the other sectors and do some stuff about emissions in transport. For example, there's a big announcement around electric vehicles. They want to get to 50% electric vehicles by 2030 by a range of measures, including uh, upgrading charging stations, you know, around all the federal highways. They want to force uh, federal government departments to buy electric vehicles. They want to encourage businesses to invest in electric vehicles with some tax breaks. Um, They've also announced some policies to try and deal with uh, emissions in other parts of the economy that aren't covered by energy and transport. So there is an attempt here to to try and um, basically create some kind of mechanism by which carbon can be reduced that does not involve putting a price on carbon. So they've been very, very clear on that. It's not a carbon tax. It's not a carbon price. Uh, and, and I think they're, they're, they're correct there. Uh, what they are doing essentially is regulating the economy, forcing businesses to reduce their carbon uh, in ways that don't involve essentially taxing it. Yes, and we've seen Mark Butler, the shadow climate minister, say that that Labor will not be using the Kyoto credits, which was the accounting trick that everyone has been talking about, which the government intends to use in order to reach the Paris climate target. So in terms of uh, Labor and how they intend to reach the target, have they laid out clearly exactly how that would happen? I don't think it's exactly you know, crystal clear yet. It's not like they've announced a big detailed policy in the way that they did in 2016 or under the Rudd-Gillard governments. Um, The details are still a little vague. Um, So to get into the technical detail, they're using the Turnbull government's previous so-called safeguards mechanism, which is essentially a cap-and-trade mechanism for large emitting industries. And they've given a a limit of something like 25,000 tonnes of carbon per year will apply to big industrial emitters. And if they go over their particular safeguard, then they've got to buy carbon credits from other parts of the economy. 
uh, but not energy. They're not allowed to buy energy credits. So they have to buy buy them from probably from agriculture, probably in forestry or something like that. So it's a kind of a shadow carbon price, which allows them to have carbon trading without saying there's a carbon price. Yes, well, they have said that they would um, allow for carbon credits and they would strengthen the Carbon Farming Initiative, which allows farmers and landholders to generate carbon credits, which they can then sell on to others so that they can, um, I guess, in in effect, reduce their emissions. Yeah, absolutely. That's the plan. I, I still think it's pretty vague, you know, and for example, the, uh, the emissions intensive industries, always the ones that have been controversial throughout previous carbon plans and policies. Labor has basically said we're going to do a a special arrangement with these industries and they haven't explained what that will be. Just Mm. sort of tailored treatment is the phrase. So, you know, make of that what you will. Basically, they're going to cut a deal with them, I think. Uh, So, yeah, I think there's still a fair bit to work out. Of course, it is a better policy than the coalitions, which is basically not a policy at all. Uh, But I think, you know, stepping back a few years, this is a much weaker policy than the policy Labor took to the election in 2016, and it's weaker again than the clean energy future legislation that ran for two years under Julia Gillard. So, you know... Labor's slid a long way back on carbon policy and and despite their bold claims about trying to do stuff, you know, uh, well, we'll we'll see, won't we? I mean, they still have the economy-wide carbon emissions goal of 50% reductions by 2030. That's a good thing, obviously, although less than what the science says we need to do. And they still believe in decarbonisation by 2050. But, and here's the big but, nothing on coal. Nothing at all on the coal industry, on coal mining, Uh, on burning coal in fossil fuel energy so you know i think that is a big squib basically they've 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 ignored the elephant in the room well labor are pretty scared when it comes to climate policy and energy given the history that they've had with it and particularly tony abbott's effectiveness in calling their policies a carbon tax and as we know peter credlin said and admitted that it wasn't a carbon tax. Um, But now, as soon as Labor announces their climate policy, we've seen Scott Morrison and other ministers start calling it a carbon tax 2.0, which is not really the case at all, but it seems to be something that they are desperately clinging on to in terms of bolstering their appeal to voters. Well, this is where I find climate policy so frustrating. You know, the government was always going to call whatever Labor did a carbon tax. It wouldn't have mattered if Labor did nothing at all. They probably still would have been accused of putting a price on carbon. So I would have thought Labor would have grasped the nettle and actually gone back to the system that we knew worked back in 2012, implemented by the woman that they say was a great Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, um, and which we know reduced emissions, uh, a carbon tax. But no, they're not going to do that. So let's see. I mean, in the end, we just need to reduce emissions anyway, anyhow. But uh, this is definitely the third or fourth best solution, if you like, compared to the one that we know already worked. Exactly. And it certainly um, is something that people are sensitive about in terms of Uh, the cost of living and low wages growth and Josh Frydenberg has suggested that he can do things to help people. Um, Unfortunately it's really just tinkering at the edges in particular over the weekend we saw announcements around one-off cash payments to around 4 million people who receive um, social security payments from the government.
government, but that does not include people who are on New Start, the unemployed. It is for um, other other types such as pensioners, disability support pension receivers or recipients, carers, single parents, veterans, and their dependents. And it is pretty small. It's quite a meagre amount, $75 for single people and $125 for couples. And that is meant to be really to help deal with your electricity bills. But it seems like a a rather short-sighted and opportunistic policy. Yeah, I I don't think this one will go down well with voters at all. I mean, it just, it seems like Firstly, you're right. It's just not very much money. It's not a whole electricity bill, is it? 75 bucks. I mean, what is that going to cover? Like a couple of weeks of your electricity. So, you know, there's that. Um, Secondly, there's the obvious cruelty of excluding people on Newstart apparently simply because they're on Newstart. There's no justification for the government for doing this. Um, They really do hate unemployed people. They just really hate them so much, this government. Um, And, you know, thirdly, I think it it reminds people of electricity bills, which are high, and the reason they're high is actually because of the government. The government has comprehensively stuffed up energy policy over six years by destroying certainty for investors and not getting enough renewable energy into the grid, which is the cheapest form of new energy. Therefore, electricity prices have gone up. And so, you know, the government hasn't even been able to get their big stick legislation through, which they claimed they were going to kind of legislate to crack down on energy retailers. Well, they haven't done that. So, yeah, I I think voters are terribly cynical about these kind of cash giveaways. Well, it is one of their core components of their election platform from the last election was to reduce electricity bills and to reduce the cost of living as well as providing tax cuts to small, medium and large businesses of which they didn't get the large end companies through. I mean, I think that to be fair to the government, uh, they did get the tax cuts through to everyone except big business. So, uh, you know, uh, individuals have had tax breaks and small businesses have had tax breaks. And that's the other thing that Frydenberg's talking about today is going to bring forward all of yeah, last year's big tax cuts to individuals, um, even bring them forward earlier. So basically from 1 July, everyone will get a bigger tax cut. It will probably add up to about $500 for a middle income earner. So, I mean, you know, welcome, but probably not transform. No, it won't make a massive difference. And we see that the um, government, the coalition is saying that they will get a return to surplus in this budget, although a lot of people have speculated that it is not necessarily due to excellent management, but rather due to rising coal and iron and ore prices, as well as uh, the underspend on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which is um, quite significant. It's reduced, or it's about $1.6 billion of an underspend at least. Yeah, this is one of those areas where you do have to follow certain journalists. Rick Morton at The Australian's kind of the guy to follow here. He's been delving into the NDIS pretty carefully over the last year or two. There's a massive underspend in the NDIS. They seem seem to be underspending by billions, I think, which is quite surprising and it's a bit worrying for the future of that scheme. Um, 
the parameter variations, as they're so called in the budget, basically have to do with things like commodity prices and unemployment rates and things like that. The economy's going okay at the moment in terms of employment, even if wages are stagnating. And yeah, commodity prices are up. Iron ore's up at $85 a tonne or something, and that's pouring billions of dollars of royalties into the federal treasury. So the government's got a bit of a leeway, a bit of a war chest to give money away. Mm. And Ben, before I let you go, are there any other items that either the government or Labor have uh, indicated they might focus on? Well, you never do know until you read the budget papers carefully. There'll definitely be some surprises buried in there this afternoon. I'm not going into the budget lock-up today, so I'll have to wait until 7.30 like the rest of us to go through the budget papers, but there's bound to be some surprises. I'm expecting all sorts of pork barrelling, particularly to the regions, to try and shore up the nationals. Um, The government has said they'll spend big on infrastructure. Uh, That remains to be seen. I mean, this government always says it spends big on infrastructure. It actually hasn't. It's actually spent less on infrastructure than Labor did. So we'll have to wait and see, basically, Amy. We will. And uh, I know a lot of people at the ABC will be having a close eye on the budget as well, given that they've had many budget cuts recently. Oh, don't yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all if we saw some just nasty little vindictive cuts by the the coalition against their enemies. They certainly would love to do a cut against the ABC, I think, just to, just for, because they can. <laughs> <laughs> and this may be their last chance. Exactly. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ben, thanks for coming in to talk all about federal politics and tonight's federal budget. Thanks, Amy. That was Ben Eltham from New Matilda, and we were discussing their Australian politics at the federal level and the budget which is being delivered uh, by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. It will be his first budget. It may be his last. We will find out very, very soon as an election will be called and uh, the budget was brought forward a month uh, because of that very reason. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio once more Dr Emma Shortus, who is based at the EU Studies Centre at RMIT and uh, she's done many things, as I mentioned before. She's particularly interested in US politics and US history, environmental history as well. And she, of course, being at the EU Centre, is um, in the thick of it with Brexit as well. So I welcome Emma and thank you. How's your sanity at the moment? Yeah, look, compromised, I would say, <laughs> um, because I work at the EU Centre and I'm sort of deep in US politics, but also Brexit as well. It's been a, it's been an overwhelming couple of weeks, I have to say. Yeah, it's crazy on Twitter alone if you're following either of the major areas there because it's just like an inundation of information and changing scenarios. <laughs> That's exactly right. And it is so much, all these hypotheticals, you know, in the US, and with Brexit, it's like, you know, we've got six possible scenarios that could play out here. And honestly, it's just exhausting trying to keep up with it all. I know. Like the BBC's gotten to the point where they've got like ch- charts and diagrams yeah. that you follow with if they do this, yes or no, then goes to that bit next. Like, you know, when you do yep. those quizzes. Yeah, but that's exactly right. <laughs> It's very tragic. Um, We're not going to talk about Brexit because that would be a whole other 
discussion, but we are going to talk about US politics, America, the land of the free. And uh, the president, of course, seems to take up a lot of space in (laughs) this whole topic of politics, given he's the president, but also because he can't seem to help pushing himself into a range of areas um, and Obviously, he's ongoing tweeting. So let's um, talk about what has been most on people's minds, which is um, the report that was released, yet we have not actually seen the full report or even the report itself. We've seen um, the Attorney-General's summation of the report, and I am talking about the Mueller report. This was this special investigation where um, the former head of the FBI was engaged to look into possible connections between Donald Trump and his campaign with Russia. That could be Russian government, Russian spies, Russian hackers. Um, And we've seen so many things come out of this um, report. But some of the stats I just wanted to share before we get into it, because I was um, pretty surprised now that we're stepping back to look at what happened. 34 people and three companies were indicted. Paul Manafort has uh, gone to jail for seven and a half years. Michael Cohen for three and a half years. 26 of those uh, people indicted were Russian nationals. There were 2,800 subpoenas, 500 search warrants and 500 witness interviews. That seems like a pretty thorough and big job by the special counsel. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's an awful lot to do in just under two years, isn't it? And it's, it's huge. I think it's really important to highlight that as well when, when you kind of see articles coming out of, I guess, more more sort of in more in Trump's favour that are saying, you know, this is nothing, this was a witch hunt, this was a waste of time. It's really important to remember that, you know, 34 people being indicted is pretty significant mm-hmm. when you're talking about the President of the United States. So I think it's really important to remember that and also to remember that this is a... 400 plus page report that we haven't seen. We've just seen a letter summarising that report written by a Republican Attorney General and that's really important. I mean if yes. you just kind of think back to... Appointed to by you, Trump. Exactly. Yeah. yeah he's, a, he's a partisan actor and I think you, we sometimes forget that because we're so used to people being kind of hyper partisan to being kind of Fox News really kind of crazy Trump supporters I guess is what we're expecting but because Barr is, seems kind of reasonable in comparison to that I think some Sometimes we forget that he is a Republican. He was appointed specifically to handle this report, to shepherd it through and to do the least damage to Trump and the administration, to the Republican Party, as possible. And and so far, I think he's, he's, he's done a pretty good job of that. Yeah, and the former Attorney General was fired uh, by Trump and had, had to kind of... Um, basically step back from having any involvement in this particular investigation. Yeah, that's right. So Jeff Sessions recused himself from the from the investigations. So you're right, he removed himself totally, kind of right at the start of the mm. investigation, and Trump was furious, you know, and he, he never, in true Trump fashion, never let go of that grudge. So he was keen to get rid of, rid of Sessions for a long time, and also because he didn't trust Sessions, I think, to kind of shepherd this report through. And so Bill Barr was settled on as, as a good candidate who was, you know, hopefully acceptable to the Senate. And of course he was. And and it's for this reason. It's because he's been very good at, at you know, providing this this summary to Congress to kind of, you know, doing enough, I think, mm. to, to appear as though he's kind of being bipartisan. But at the same time, I think, you know, being pretty partisan, he's yeah. still a Republican. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty surprising that that's 
possible when you have an independent investigation that's really rigorous and then the person who's meant to uh, communicate the independent investigation is themselves not independent yeah, that's right. And look, I think that's one of, you know, if we if we kind of take a step back, that's one of the things that Trump is really highlighting about the American political system. You know, this isn't happening because of Trump. He didn't create these laws and this mm. system. He's just, he and his supporters are just kind of exploiting flaws, I guess, that are already there. So we have this idea about the American system that there's a separation of powers, that there are checks and balances. But what Trump is doing is, is highlighting that, you know, maybe that's not true. And actually partisan actors control a lot of these processes and and that exposes you to exactly these kind of situations. Exactly. And um, that reminds me of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think she was questioning like right-leaning think tanks about what a congressperson can do, like what, whether there are any checks or balances on what, where their funding or donations come from, then if they deal with a piece of legislation that's directly relevant to the, in, the sector or the company that they receive donations for, do they need to declare a conflict of interest? And all of this was basically like, no, 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 there's no transparency and there's not that level of oversight. And then the next step is really that apparently the president is above the law in many regards. Yeah. And again, you know, that's one of the things that Trump is highlighting and, and AOC, is, this Democratic Congresswoman, is is doing a really excellent job of, of bringing that to light in a, in a really clear way, I think. But again, you know, these, these are things that the, a lot of the American system and what Trump is highlighting is based on kind of norms and not law. So it's based on mm. convention and kind of expected standards of behaviour. So you know, the founding fathers kind of expected that a president would behave well, and so didn't, didn't, <laughs> didn't you know, foresee. We, you know, not all, not not necessarily all the time, but but kind of, it is assumed that people will behave in a certain way. And what Trump is highlighting is that actually there's nothing really stopping anyone from not behaving that way. And and it is, you know, I think it's quite shocking to a lot of Americans, and it can be quite shocking from a distance as well when you're just not expecting people to be able to do those kind of things. Yeah, it does highlight just how different Australia and America are in terms of our expectations. But let's um, quickly delve into what we do know in terms of um, the report or letter on the special counsel's report. So um, the report is really or was to be looking into whether members of the presidential campaign of Donald Trump and others associated with it conspired with the Russian government in its efforts to interfere in the 2016 US presidential election or sought to obstruct the related federal investigations. So there's kind of two distinct things here and people have been, the media in particular, highlighting the different conclusions that Mueller made or didn't make in relation to yep. those two areas. So um, could we hopefully illuminate and make slightly clearer what exactly those distinctions were? Yeah, look, it, it's a really, um, it's a tricky one and I would just continue to emphasise that we actually don't know really what Mueller has concluded in this report. We know what Barr has interpreted interpreted out of that report and I think it's really important to emphasize I'm a historian so mm. you know I'm always reminding my students secondary interpretations like this are really good they they help us to understand political processes but the primary source the report is the most important thing and we haven't seen the report mm-hmm. but ha- having said that um 
Barr has written this letter to Congress, which kind of is his summary of that report, and he divided it into two sections, exactly as you said. So the, the question of whether there was um, collusion between Russia, Russian, the Russian government, Russian agents, um, people acting on behalf of the Russian government, yep. and the Oligarchs. Trump campaign. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or, and then the separate question, or not, not entirely separate, but the other question yeah, of, of obstruction, mm. exactly. So whether Trump obstruct, has, has been attempting to obstruct justice. So in the question of collusion, the, the letter has basically, I think, confirms what we kind of already knew or already suspected about their campaign, which is that um, Russian agents that reached out to the Trump campaign, um, they offered to assist the Trump campaign with, with getting dirt on Hillary, which, mm. as we know, Donald Trump Jr. loved that idea. Um, and they also, of course, hacked Hillary Clinton's campaign emails, the campaign chairman's emails, and dropped those at a really opportune time. And and I do think, you know, it's it really make hard a big to... Difference. Yeah, it made a yeah. huge difference. It's really hard to, to untangle those kind of influences, but it did have a, have a really big impact. But what the letter says, what the bar letter says, is that there isn't evidence of collusion. There's no um, agreement, tacit or, or otherwise. So basically there's no mm. contract signed, I guess, between the Russian government and the Trump campaign to, to act to help each other. The question of obstruction of justice, so once this investigation started, whether the president has attempted to stymie the investigation illegally, is slightly murkier, I think. So this is the question of whether, you know, when Trump fired James Comey, the director of the FBI, and and said in a television interview that he'd done it specifically while he was thinking about Russia, Mm. you know, whether that was obstruction of justice. So that's that's definitely murkier because one of the few quotes from the Mueller report that Barr included in that letter is to say, it's I, I'll have to look it up exactly, but it's basically there's not enough evidence that Trump has committed a crime, but it does not. This report does not exonerate him, yep. which I think is really a really interesting quote, a really important one, and and harks back. It's kind of uncanny how similar it is to what that director of the FBI, James Comey, said about Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. You mm. know that well, there's not enough evidence to to go to trial or to bring charges, but but this person has has acted badly basically this person yeah. is not exonerated um and you know we we kind of know how well that went in the end so so that's this kind of really interesting question where basically the attorney general and the department of justice have made the decision not to proceed with charges but then there's this really interesting question i think where you know did Mueller intend for the attorney general to make that decision mm. or did he intend for it to go to congress and i think most most people, I guess, with clear heads mm. would say that actually that should be up to the Congress. The Congress is supposed to be the check on the on the executive, on the office of the president, and so Congress should be the one to make that decision. So I know, unfortunately we don't kind of have many clear answers um, from the, from this letter, and, and I don't necessarily think we'll get clear answers from a 400-page report, but, you know, that's kind of the nature of the situation we're in and part mm. of the reason that Trump can, can exploit it. So even though the letter, you know, one of the few quotes we have specifically says the president is not exonerated yes. Trump still comes out and says total complete I've been exoneration vindicated. Yeah. yeah exactly it's really um it's maddening I guess <laughs> because he's all, he's basically labeled it Trump has labeled this whole process um an investigation a hoax and that you know it was just a witch hunt yeah. against him you know no other president should have to go through this again poor me you know it's been so hard on me to be investigated um and and he's really played the victim and he's also been out at rallies which yeah. is so not presidential because we're not even in a campaign at the moment <laughs> 
moment, you know, talking about how, you know, he's completely clear and, you know, Teflon essentially. Um, In terms of how that has influenced or not the perception of Trump and his culpability in potentially obstructing justice um, or any other potentially criminal um, conduct. What do you think, um, not only his base, which is, you know, pretty one-eyed, but also the rest of America kind of perceiving this report to be? Because it, it seems like the polling that comes out is rather disparate and there's not necessarily a consensus view, but there is a lot of probably confusion. Yeah, look, I think that's exactly right. And you're right that some polling's come out um, fairly recently, just in the last couple of days in the aftermath of this report. And I, I would be kind of quite sceptical about what that tells you because I don't think there's necessarily been enough time um, between that, between those events, but also because we haven't seen the actual report. Mm-hmm. So people are confused because it's confusing, right? Um, but Trump's approval rating has been sitting pretty solidly at around um, 43% and that hasn't changed much since the release of this letter. So I, I think the kind of conclusions we can, we can draw from that uh, uh, basically what you said you know his his base's opinion isn't hasn't changed you know fox news is is spouting the total exoneration and mm. the, and the people that um initiated this investigation are traitors who need to be punished you know the language is is quite extreme and and so i don't think that's going to shift i do think it plays into people's you know people who who kind of maybe slightly disengaged from politics it plays into this perception of you know the Trump administration is corrupt, you know, it's, because it's not just this report. It's it's Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer who's in jail, Paul Manafort's yeah. in jail. You know, all these people around him who who have, have been convicted of crimes. And then the Very kind of... Very close to him yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. It's not really just close. an associate. Like, Michael Cohen was his personal attorney. <laughs> exactly right. And and for, for decades and worked really close with him, closely with him on things, you know, on issues that, that still haven't come to light. They may come out because of the Mueller report, but they may not... And that's things like, you know, the attempt to build Trump Tower in Moscow. We still don't know about those kind of deals. We don't know how long they went on. But, you know, I think people perceive this kind of, there's a perception of, of underhanded, underhandedness of, and mm. kind of nefarious activities. Rightly so, I think. So I think this report kind of plays into that. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily create major shifts in in people's political allegiances and and you know i I would always say that 2020 is a heck of a long time away you know if we just think about what's happened in this last week Mm. (laughs) it's it's kind of sad in a way that it's going to get even more intense because it yeah it's Often you you go through that presidential election and everyone gets a bit excited and, you know, you think of the Obama campaigns and then it dies down. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? There's a bit of a drop. And I feel like there's not been really enough of a drop. It's just kind of been this sustained level of drama, tension and uh, conflict that's just ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's kind of reflective of the way Trump operates. Mm. You know, we, it's when it finally seems like he's getting some clear air about something, he'll, he'll bring up something completely different, like health yeah. insurance or, or some other issue. And you can, you can almost see his advisors kind of pulling their hair out, going, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> we're, we're trying to get this kind of consistent message across. But it just seems to be the way Trump operates. You know, he kind of pings from, from one issue to the next and doesn't follow through on things. So it's really hard for people to keep up in this kind of perpetual chaos is is just kind of exhausting but it seems like it you know will just continue and while it's hard to imagine it getting more intense you know I think it will in the lead up to 2020. Yeah well we were 
quite focused on the border wall that mm-hmm. is proposed to be constructed and, a, and the fact that the president declared a state of national emergency. Um, where did we get up to with that? Because that seemed to drop behind a bit in terms of recognition and other things have taken a bit more prominence. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what's happened. And and again, I think that's basically because we did get to this kind of point where, you know, is he going to declare a national emergency, isn't he? And, he? and he waited a while and then he did and kind of tried to appropriate these funds to do it. And then the House, the, the House of Representatives pushed back and said, no, you can't do this. And, you know, it seems like when Trump gets frustrated when he doesn't get a, a clear win, which in his mind also means somebody else losing. You know, you can't both win. Somebody somebody has to lose. He gets frustrated and moves on to something else. So he'll make an effort to distract with another issue, which he does repeatedly. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, part of what's happened with the wall is also that it's been overshadowed by this the, the ending of the Mueller investigation and the, the bar letter and that kind of mm. ongoing saga. And then Trump is also trying to divert attention away, you know, at his rallies and things, but precisely because he doesn't have this, what he would regard as a clear victory. Mm. Well, you mentioned um, healthcare, which is where he decided to ping next, which was <laughs> really not probably a good idea given that um, their last attempt at destroying Obamacare failed miserably and the proposed policy they were going to replace it with was pretty lacking Mm -hmm. um, and would have put a lot of people in very desperate situations in terms of, you know, particularly people who are chronically ill or even terminally ill um, relying on Obamacare. It's not certainly not a perfect policy, as we've heard. But what um, what did Trump do when he decided to suddenly make an announcement that healthcare was going to be their primary focus post Mueller? Yeah, it's it's a kind of it's it's really hard to find the logic sometimes behind what he does, but I I think you know mm. with with Trump what you what you have to remember is that the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, which is the the act that you were talking about, kind of dubbed Obamacare, and and I think that's the key with Trump. You know, Trump mm. p- Trump came into office with a vision of basically destroying everything that Obama ever did. And and Obamacare, named after the president, is kind of symbolic of that. So he'd always intended to, de- to destroy Obamacare. He tried um, and he failed, even while they controlled both houses of Congress. The Republicans weren't able to come up with a replacement for Obamacare. And that, I think, really stung Trump and has really stuck with him as a, as a defeat. And so what he said at the end of that was, you know, this is such a terrible... Um, Act. This is this. Is, everybody's suffering under this act. Premiums are so expensive. We'll just let it implode. We'll let mm. Obamacare destroy itself. Now, of course, the Affordable Care Act, as you said, is not perfect. There are a lot of flaws with it, um, but it did insure 20 million people who didn't previously have insurance and it protected people with pre-existing conditions. So before Obamacare, insurers could just say, well, we're not going to cover you because you have a pre-existing condition, right? Mm. So this is a huge deal for 20 million people and, and the Republicans wouldn't touch it because basically they were too scared to take insurance off 20 million people. Yes. So it was and kind of... And probably would vote potentially Republican if they are in a working class yeah. suburb. Not yeah. all, but some... 
Yeah, exactly. And it, and if we go back to polling and, and, you know, this question of the Mueller report, issues like healthcare consistently poll as so far above things like that as, as vote changes. So that's why the Republicans are really wary. And, you know, all of a sudden Trump's come back and said, this is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to we're going to get rid of Obamacare because it's terrible. And the Republicans are going to come up with a new plan. Right. So the, the Republicans don't even control the House, the House of Representatives. So how they could possibly get a new deal through through there I think is you know uh, like it's just fantasy mm. basically and and in the Senate Mitch McConnell the leader of the Senate oh, yes. has basically come back and said I look forward to seeing you know President Trump's plan so <laughs> they're not the slightest bit interested I think in touching this yeah um and and look rightly so I think like I think it would uh, aside from the the moral um issues here in terms of taking health insurance away from people which is literally a matter of life and death mm. politically that would just be honestly would be suicide for them to, to touch that I think and they know it you know some of those Republicans are not silly politically and they know that that really they should just stay away from it and sometimes it's easier to talk about how bad something is like Obamacare yeah. without actually coming up with an alternative and I think that's what they'll keep doing. Yeah it's a complex area of policy in any country, let alone America, where exactly. there's such enormous amount of inequality um, and also the element of employers, in some cases, providing yep. health care as well. Um, it was funny to see that... Is it Chuck Schumer? People call him Chuck, but he's called Charles, isn't he? Um, who's the Senate Democratic leader when um, Trump said he was going to get rid of Obamacare? He said, make our day. <laughs> yeah bring it on because that's really the best thing you could do for the yep. Democrats. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like in some cases Trump is uniting Democrats, though I know that there's a bit of um, tension between <laughs> some of the more progressive yep. Democrats. Um, and there are many of them, so um, it would be unfair to single out one, but certainly the person who consistently gets a large amount of media coverage and probably gets attacked the most as well would be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, she is very high profile. She is very outspoken and she speaks very well yeah. about these issues very passionately. Um, and one of her speeches, I mean, she seems to have a speech go viral every week. <laughs> yeah, it's every kind couple of days. I exactly. Think. It's yeah. just like hard to keep track of which one. But I did see one where she was talking about um, you know, wanting good health care, wanting clean air, clean water as not being elitist and that we should actually care about climate change because this is like the biggest issue ever. And the way that she phrased it or put it was so powerful um, and so impassioned and it was really about um, humanity and you know, like your constituents. Like she was putting it back on them. These are your constituents and you think, you know, then that this is an elitist latte sipping issue. You know, it's not. Um, it was pretty impressive, but I'd like to get your sense of where people are on the spectrum in terms of... Um, particularly in the Democrats, supporting the so-called Green New Deal that has been put forward as a, a kind of big-picture solution to some of the major environmental issues that uh, America faces, such as climate change, particularly given that they withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement. 
Yeah, look, it, I think it's an issue, again, that, that gets kind of overshadowed by Trump, apart from when he, he kind of brings it up in his own weird way when he's talking about new coal coal mines or whatever. And and you're right that we do focus on, on AOC, on Ocasio-Cortez, and that's part, that is exactly because, you know, she is so um, forceful and... and brings to light so clearly the kind of hypocrisy of, of suggesting that this is an issue for for the elites, you know, only elites care about climate change, you know, she she kind of put that to bed really effectively. Mm. And, and I think, you know, part of the reason actually that, to go back to what you said about Chuck Schumer being so happy about Trump being, bringing up health care, part of the reason they're so happy about that, the Democrats, I think, is because they actually do want to talk about policy, mm, right? The yeah. Democrats don't necessarily want to talk about impeachment or corruption. They want to talk about health care and environment because those are the issues that people actually care about. And so I think what AOC has done, which is which is really extraordinary, is is kind of bring this issue to light and show Democrats that actually it does have traction, that people do care about it. And you can speak about it in a way that is not elitist, that actually speaks to people's kind of day-to-day concerns. And so she's brought forward this idea of a Green New Deal, which has just got amazing traction in mm. the United States. Now in the UK, people are talking about it. There's something similar kind of happening in New Zealand. Um, so it's got this kind of international force behind it and, it. and it goes back, of course, to the New Deal after the Great Depression to kind of rebuild America. So it's a democratic project um, in the end. So I guess people could potentially see it as partisan, but it's essentially kind of proposing a way to deal both with climate change and with economic inequality. So it's uniting those two issues for the first time, really in a kind of coherent way. So suggesting that we can kind of build enormous renewable energy projects and at the same time provide really high quality jobs we can do things like high-speed rail which reduces flying time which also improves people's quality of life their access to amenities to jobs to all these kind of things so it's a really kind of comprehensive um program i suppose and and you you have seen i think um some more senior democrats kind of say it's you know, it's pretty pie in the sky, like good Mm. on you, young lady, but you're just being too optimistic. But I think what's really important to note is that basically all of the major prominent contenders for the Democratic nomination for president have endorsed the Green New Deal. Mm. And I think that really says a lot about the way that kind of environmental politics is going in the United States. You know, sometimes it takes... Something unfortunately, it takes a kind of disaster for people to to respond. And and when it comes to the environment, Trump is kind of that disaster. For, and people kind of look at that and go, "Wow, actually, we really need to do something. We need to do something really radical." And I think what the Green New Deal is doing is kind of really focusing people's minds that you know that we can do something about this. We can imagine a new future. We can create a new future, and people don't have to suffer for it. Yeah, you know, we can bring people with us, and that's a pretty extraordinary shift in in the way people are talking about things Mm, exactly um particularly that economic uh and inequality lens is really yeah it's been there in terms of policy discussions like from outside groups lobby groups but not from the politicians themselves really pushing that um it was kind of ridiculous to see the conservative reaction to the Green New Deal. It's kind of similar to how we have reactions in Australia from conservatives around a carbon tax. As I said in the first hour, you know, the coalition now saying any basic policy, um, climate change policy from Labor is a carbon tax 2.0. Well, we saw from um, Donald Trump, he called the proposal 
an extreme $100 trillion government takeover that would mean no more airplanes, no more cows and one car per family. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, I, I mean, in much the same way Chuck, Chuck Schumer said bring it on in terms of healthcare, yeah. Republicans are kind of licking their lips, I think, in, the, in this idea of a Green New Deal and especially the kind of spectre of socialism, mm. which, you know, has has real political traction in, in the United States. And and I think, look, it will work to a certain extent. What it, what it will especially do... Will bring money to is bring money to the Republicans. So those kind of you know fossil yeah. fuel industries, those vested interests, will be rightly concerned about this idea of a green new deal, and so their money will will go more and more to Republicans. I think, but but you know I think the the kind of exciting thing about the, these young new Democrats is they know that they understand how the system works and they don't care they're willing to take political risks they're willing to be authentic i think and to stand up for what they believe in and to back themselves with smart policies so while i don't think it's guaranteed at all that they'll succeed i think it's really it's really something significant that they're talking about this in this way and mm. and you know when people are calling them socialists or whatever they're not denying it they're not running the way that democrats have in the past they're kind of backing themselves and their policies well, that's refreshing, isn't it? That's, <laughs> I think so. It's a pretty big deal in the scheme of things and particularly in the political environment that we find ourselves in. Um, in terms of the environment, there's been so many things that have gone under the radar, particularly uh, Trump seeking to really undermine the efforts of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Authority over there, which, um, you know, he's constantly been removing or getting rid of regulations, undermining um, things like uh, checks on industry mm-hmm. and uh, mining and gas exploration. Um, one of the things that seemed to be a major development and it is relating to your particular field of research is around uh, Arctic oil and gas drilling um, which America has been seeking to do which Donald Trump um, very much wanted to have happen um, and it has been essentially um, been ruled illegal. Yeah, that's right. So so Trump had I- issued an executive order attempting to withdraw Obama's withdrawal of these lands <laughs> from 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 oil drilling and and prospecting. So Obama um, had had basically issued a couple of memoranda and executive orders withdrawing these lands from from oil um, drilling and of course Trump wants to undo everything Obama's done. Mm-hmm. So he so he attempted to reverse that and it's gone to court so a bunch of environmentalists took the took this to court and the judge ruled there that the president doesn't have the power to unwithdraw. <laughs> it's a bit of a, a funny way of putting it, but um, so the president doesn't have the power to do this. The president can withdraw lands from from uh, federal lands from oil and and gas drilling, but basically they can't reverse that. The Congress right. can reverse that, but mm. it's only Congress. So this is a really significant environmental victory because basically Republicans since the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge was created in 1980 under under Jimmy Carter. It's one of you know Jimmy. Carter's one of those presidents that people say didn't do anything, but yeah. actually this is a really significant legacy of Carter's that he created this huge wildlife reserve. Republicans since then have essentially been trying to reverse that. Um, they hit a bit of a hiccup in 1989 when the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in Alaska, um, which I, I spent quite a bit of my PhD um, writing about. 
So there's this huge oil spill. It was the biggest mm. oil spill in American history happened in Alaska and perceptions really changed around oil oil drilling in that kind of what was understood as a pristine Arctic environment and the kind of damage that that oil drilling did. So, so there's kind of a lull, but then, of course, we get to, to Bush and then to Trump and there's these real efforts to to turn that around and to open up these areas to oil drilling again. And and again, I think what, what this is doing, you know, we have these court cases, it's highlighting just how much of the kind of environmental protection system on the United, in the United States is is based in law rather than than kind of politics or, or proactive environmental efforts. Mm. So basically, you know, since the 1970s, since the Endangered Species Act was created and the Environmental Protection Agency under Nixon, it has to be said, under under a Republican president, environmentalists have kind of been been playing defense the whole time to to kind of use laws to protect areas that have that have already been designated um, as protected areas, and that's mm. what's happened again. But you know, I I don't think the fight is over in any way so Trump will continue to try and open up these areas to oil drilling he's he's constantly talking about new coal, coal mines and I think in the Arctic of course there's this this added dimension of it not all being United States territory of course there's contested sovereignty in the Arctic so the Russians are also quite interested in oil drilling in this area they've been dropping flags on the North Pole and kind of of claiming these areas and and you know we have this kind of double bind as well that of course, more oil drilling accelerates climate change, but climate change in the Arctic also means that ice is melting mm. and sea floors are becoming much more accessible, shipping's becoming much easier, and things like oil drilling are becoming um, much less expensive as as the weather becomes more favourable. So I think we'll, we'll continue to see this push under the Trump administration, at least to open these areas to oil drilling, in competition, it has to be said, with the Russians and, and possibly even the Canadians. Yeah, it is pretty shocking and we've seen some, I guess when you highlight that oil issue when we saw that major spill, it was a very visual example because there were so many pictures and video footage of what had happened to the environment, the animals that were there. So I think it really did hit home because it was so catastrophic and yeah, very, very graphic. And now um, we see other imagery coming out of the Arctic and surrounding areas where you see these major um, glaciers, you know, break down yeah. and and f- fall, fall apart. And then we see polar bears wandering around, literally about to die of yeah. starvation. Um, there's so many shocking things coming out that um, you wonder whether it is becoming more of an issue for voters, even if it's not their top issue, but it's still in the back of their mind because it's often, as you say, that area has always been conceived of or thought of as a pristine, untouched, you know, not very populated area of the world that should be protected. Um, Whether that has ever happened (laughs) enough is really debatable. And as we've seen Japan whaling again in the sanctuary over there um, shows that it's really hard to police. But in terms of your understanding of, of like the environment and Trump's continual attack on it, do you think that AOC um, is correct in highlighting, you know, lead levels in the water and, um, you know, air pollution as being major areas that not only Trump has probably dropped the ball on, but actually might be undermining? Yeah, look, I I absolutely think she is. And I think what what 
she is doing is is kind of drawing the connections I think between those two things that that initially seem quite separate so you know starving polar bears in the Arctic are really kind of evoke a lot of emotion they make people feel quite sad or whatever but you feel a certain disconnect of Mm. course from that polar bear and from that environment which is you know I guess sparsely populated or or people in the mainland US at least don't feel that kind of human connection to it. But what AOC with the Green New Deal I think is doing and her highlighting of of places like Flint in Michigan where she's talking about lead levels in water is highlighting that actually those two things are intimately connected, that environmental justice is not just about animals in the Arctic, it's actually about people in Flint, it's about air quality in New York and that kind of environmental justice is deeply connected to economic justice and economic inequality So, you know, the places that are most affected by high lead levels are, you know, economically deprived areas, but it's also about racial justice. Mm. And she's highlighting that too, that, you know, Flint, Michigan is predominantly African-American so that people have these kind of triple level of suffering imposed upon them because they're poor and because they're black. And that actually this is really deeply connected and the same forces that are creating that situation in Flint in Michigan are creating the same situation, this situation in the Arctic with, you know, melting glaciers and, you know, the, the same companies drilling for oil. And so I think what she's really doing is creating this kind of unifying narrative and helping people to understand how these political forces are connected and that environmental justice is not just about distant polar bears saving, you know, an iconic species. Environmental justice is actually about us at home too. Hmm. No, it's really, that's such a great point. In in terms of raising um, the voices of marginalised people and disadvantaged people, she's doing a really great job of of doing that. I'm speaking with Dr Emma Shortis, who is based at the EU Study Centre at RMIT. And Emma, um, before we go, I just wanted to quickly talk about um, the foreign affairs stage for a very quick moment because we saw a while back but is this we haven't yet discussed it is um the North Korean leader and Donald Trump met together was it in Vietnam yes so they had this meeting it it all was like built up to be some massive huge deal and then it all kind of fell apart and a a lunch was cancelled and Trump walked away and you know we never talked about it again. What really, what on earth happened? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Like, even I, when I'm so deeply in it, I, you know, a couple of weeks passed and you go, oh, yeah, that's right. Trump did meet with, <laughs> with the North Koreans in Vietnam. Yeah, so he did. So this is the, the second summit. It's, yes. it's billed as this kind of crucial peace talks. And it, again, you know, it's part of Trump's effort to kind of ping from, from issue to the next. And, and this was, I think, part of his effort to get a kind of cheap win, to, to feel good on the international stage, to have lots of people looking at him, to deal with a dictator. You know, he's much more comfortable talking to dictators than he is to to other kind of multinational forums. But I I think, unsurprisingly, basically what's happened is that the two sides have gone in, you know, neither of them are budging on certain issues, whether it's in terms of sanctions or or denuclearisation on the North Korean side. And what we've seen is a Trump administration that's basically woefully unprepared for for this kind of diplomacy, for Mm. these kind of negotiations. Trump, I think 
sees himself as a kind of Reagan-like figure. He sees himself as as the kind of charming, affable, friendly Reagan who walks into a meeting with Gorbachev and negotiates the end of the Cold War because he's so friendly, you know, like oh, Trump no. Trump has kind of bought that narrative, I think, he of diplomacy. Deals. Yeah, exactly. So he thinks he's <laughs> going to kind of, you know, he's made friends with this guy and, and they're going to make a deal. But basically what's happened, you know, not to, to no one's surprise in the kind of diplomatic community is that they've been un- unable to reach any kind of compromise Um, Trump, it seems, Trump kind of pushed too far in terms of what they were asking for in in denuclearisation. They basically failed to understand that that is the only negotiating card the North Koreans have and they're not going to give it up lightly. They're going to have... They will only give it up in exchange slowly and probably Mm. in exchange for quite a, a... great deal of money to put it bluntly in terms of um, economic growth and Trump has failed to understand that so he's pushed them too far and then walked out and so we see nothing we see no kind of result and I look I'm pretty skeptical you know some kind of foreign policy pundits have said this is so important for them to be talking on the world yeah. stage but I'm um, to be honest I'm I'm just not convinced I think it's a kind of Trump seeing it as a as a photo opportunity and and the North Koreans seeing it as a way of kind of giving themselves some legitimacy when they're talking to the you know the most powerful man basically in the world and so what we see come out of it is essentially nothing exactly. aside from some pretty pictures a PR exercise yeah, exactly. yeah yeah it's um it's pretty disturbing that there is that like not only diplomatic disconnect but probably a cultural disconnect as well that yeah, is absolutely. Um, you know you need really clever nuanced diplomats taking part in those negotiations and no doubt Donald Trump might have wanted to take the lead yes in some yeah, way I imagine so to to make a deal and that's exactly right you know he has this sense of confidence in himself that he he is the guy who will mm. walk in and and make the deal that kind of everyone else is is not as smart as him they're not as good as negotiators as him because he's this master businessman but of course you know diplomacy is pretty different to to business just a bit yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly so so you know, I guess that's what happens and it, it's also what happens when you surround yourself with a team who are confident but inexperienced in, in these kind of issues, you know, who who are sort of supremely confident in the in the goodness of the United States and the United States' mission mm-hmm. but fail basically to understand the other side and how they're perceived from the outside. Yeah. Emma, it's been so fabulous speaking with you again and I really appreciate and I no doubt everyone listening does your expertise and great depth and breadth of knowledge. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr Emma Shortis who is based at the EU Studies Centre at RMIT and um, they do some great lectures and public seminars so look it up online. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm so excited to have with me in the studio Zoe Coombs-Ma, who is, uh, she's an Australian performer, writer and comedian. She makes theatre of a range of, of types. I guess you can't really categorise it, to be honest. And that's probably what makes it so successful. So um, I'm welcoming now Zoe Coombs-Ma. Hi. Hi. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Well, I actually had a much longer list of achievements that I haven't even got to yet because <laughs> I thought I'd better save some for later. Um, but it is 
pretty impressive what you've been doing at the moment in the last what, six or so years in terms of Dave and the iteration of Dave. I saw that the um, anniversary of Dave's yeah, creation came up. I had a, a Facebook memory that came up. He sort of <laughs> existed, but it was the first time I did him at the comedy festival it was six years ago yesterday. Wow. So, yeah, he's. Uh, I miss him. I miss Dave. <laughs> I haven't seen him in a while. He does. Well, he he hasn't been out since. Was it 2016 was the last show for that? Yeah, I did. I last did him. I did a couple of shows here and there. I, I last yeah. did him in Darwin, uh, the Darwin Festival last year. Yeah, maybe. But he pops up every now and then. How again. did he go in Darwin? He was great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Quite relatable. Everyone. Dave's pretty relatable yeah. to everyone. Everyone knows a Dave. <laughs> there are a lot of guys called Dave. Yeah. Well, that's where it came from. The first yeah. year that I did it at the comedy festival, it was um, this great thing where they had a page in the in the guide that was just that they had all the you know it's alphabetical, but on that page it just said the Daves, and it was sort of me, <laughs> and I had built it so that I was under Dave rather than under yeah. my own name. Um, and we all, just by chance, all the Daves happened... Like, a lot of Daves were wearing the same shirt. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so like, it was... what kind of shirt? Check shirt? It was check shirt, yeah. yeah. Seems pretty common. Red check shirt. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's really amazing how there is this formula and kind of stereotype of the Aussie male comic of which certainly Dave is drawn from. Yeah, totally. Well, I think it's also... I mean, like you said, I do lots of different kind of things. It's... It's sort of that uh, image and that sort of formula is part of... It's really just a way of communicating to an audience like, oh, it's this kind of thing. This mm. is what you're going to... This is what you can expect, so this is what you get. And I think that's, for me, that's why I'm always drawn to doing different genres and things because I like to, um, you know, I like to play with different in different arenas so an audience is coming in with a different expectation, which means you can do sort of more things to mess with them. Well, you definitely mess with the audience and it's so great to be messed with. Like, I think when I saw Bossy Bottom last year, that was the funniest thing I've seen ever. Oh, like, stop I'm it. not even stop building it. you up. I mean <laughs> it. Like, I laughed so hard and nonstop that uh, my stomach muscles were ruined for a week. It was like <laughs> I did Pilates, which I wouldn't ever do. And, um, and I walked past when we were all filing out and like completely on a high, I looked to my left and there was a seat and like a big wet patch i yeah that's i think i remember that show yeah. i took a photo of that seat uh <laughs> i didn't want to put post it online at the time because i was like well i don't want to no. you know shame that person well, that but person really enjoyed it though. that is the goal that's the goal for me is i want uh, and i think that's why um you know sort of messing with people's expectations can because comedy's all about it, it's comedy's about lots of different things mm. but for me it's really all about surprise like that um, kind of, you. I want an audience to get to a place of just total hysteria where yeah. they don't know what's going on, they don't know yeah. who they are anymore, their body's, you know, misfiring and malfunctioning. Come along, wet yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the ultimate goal. Maybe people can be pre-prepared now and potentially, you know, stock up on liners. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is, it is it's the best dangerous. I've ever been given. <laughs> a wet, wet seat. Wet, seriously. Yeah. I, I looked and went, yep. Yeah. I can see how that happened. It's <laughs> definitely possible. Yeah, but there's a lot of the audience kind of looking to each other and like kind of just going, wow, this is crazy <laughs> and so like ridiculously fun. Yeah. 
it's yeah, just it's because I think it's like that, that's what I enjoy because I love the audience I'm obsessed with the audience and I just mm. want to sort of give them the best possible night so everything that everything that I do is just in aid of like well what are they what's gonna you know what what are they thinking and what can what what is the last thing that they would expect to happen and yeah. then that's that's always a fun place to work from for me and mm. it's yeah it's it's not I, I was having this conversation with someone the other night about like I don't think I don't think that anything that I do is weird at all mm. to me it's just completely logical <laughs> it's absolutely logical it completely makes sense and it's just a way of trying to communicate with an audience um so yeah it's not I hate that kind of mm. that idea that it's like, oh, you're alternative. trying to be all weird. Yeah. No, alternative to what? It's just I'm yeah. just trying to just trying to communicate. Well, I actually think yeah, it's not alternative. You're using these conventions, and you're kind of you're either like giving a big nod to them, or you're flipping them, or you're you know highlighting and in a big flashing sign that what you're doing and making a joke out of that. Like you're using great implements like cameras and live videos and slides behind you and this great use of repetition that happens throughout the show getting all embarrassed no but like i was really impressed and what did kind of resonate was and it was funny it was in the herald sun which is also interesting that they reviewed that show and said that it was really intelligently put together and so it wasn't just like funny I'm but very smart i'm very you are very, very clever, clever. <laughs> well a lot of people have like you know hinted to the whole meta you know description of what you're doing yeah. but like when i was watching it not only was i just enjoying it but i was also going god this is really smart and how on earth like how long did that take to <laughs> you know come up with all these you know repetitious things and like little seeds that you plant at one point that then you bring back it's actually just i don't think i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not that clever i'm just it's really just the way my brain works it's just i like for instance a lot of people um i have this big gripe against storytelling (laughs) just because everyone loves storytelling everyone loves a story i personally don't like I'm unable to uh, think in a straight line, so for me, uh, the like if I sit down to write a list, even this sentence, it's gone mm. in a circle already. If I sit down to write a list, I can't get to the end of the list. I'll end up writing all over the page, and I think yeah. it's just the way that I like to think in in terms of like connections between things, and that's. Like I say, I don't think that anything I'm doing is like that clever or weird. I'm just like, well, of course that. Of course you would repeat that. Or yeah. of course that comes back there because that's the way that those things order themselves in my brain. Mm. So it's really just you're opening your brain up for everyone to see. Yeah, and, oh, and what a delightful <laughs> brain. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not just then the techniques that you're using but the content that you're discussing or putting on show and examining and I mean a lot of that content is unique in a sense because as we know in Australian comedy up until maybe five or six years ago it was pretty rare to see too many female comedians Mm. you know having like being majorly billed as like a a big um, ticket drawer and and someone who was up there with the dudes. Yeah, but oh god, we're killing it at the moment. You are killing it. I I agree. I really think you are and it's kind of really refreshing that I don't have to now only have 
kind of the dudes to pick from? Yeah, well, I mean, some of the biggest uh, the biggest names in the festival are, you know, women like Judith Lucy, mm. Hannah Gadsby, all of those those massive names, um, you know, Anne Edmonds. There's some amazing women doing stuff. I think it's sort of that kind of... It's, comedy is such a funny world because it, it really exists in this... Um, it comes up mostly through these kind of open mic nights which are very blokey and they're very male dominated environments and so the sorts of audiences that go to them are quite have a very they're very straight and very kind of male-ish or they're mm. they're there to see dudes so their um their norm and what they relate to is very much like male oriented yeah so i think if you're performing in those like when i was coming up through those sorts of things it was always trying to communicate to that audience they just wouldn't get what you were necessarily talking about so now i think it's exciting because audiences have become more diverse their audiences have more access to better things and so then you can have other conversations Mm. uh you know you can't you you can't sort of you can't talk about something in in comedy people aren't going to get it if you're not talking about something that they understand they know that's not their fault it's just about that sort of diversity of those platforms really and not everyone is catered for in that open mic scene not that there's anything wrong with that scene that Mm. scene's fine but just not for everyone Mm -mm, yeah i did read about your experience and you mentioned that there was a sydney gig that was quite pivotal for your kind of understanding of the scene and also what you would do like how you would fit or not fit in that scene and Mm. um that seemed to be i mean i was pretty shocked at the male comedian who you know said something to a woman in in the audience i won't even say it because i think it was just really inappropriate but i in terms of those kind of horrifically almost bullying statements to audience members which you have also you know highlighted in your own stand-up and saying oh just a bit of bullying when Mm. you're making fun of it yeah um you know what what was it about that experience that kind of moved you or pushed you towards a different way of doing comedy? Well, I think for me, like that particular show where um, this guy just attacked the audience was, for me, it was a couple of things. I already had Dave brewing, like he already existed as a character um, and I was sort of struggling to reconcile doing Dave at the same time as kind of trying to be myself on stage. So it was a bit confusing. <laughs> it was also confusing coming back the other way, actually, because yeah. I had all these strange Dave mannerisms. <laughs> Daveisms. <laughs> yeah, I was like doing things on stage going, well, that is, that's not me. I don't do that. But I suppose now I do. Um, (laughs) The thing with that was it really made me think about... It was just a breaking point Mm. of, like, I don't fit into this world. This is not the... This is... I can't communicate to this audience in the way that I want to, in a way that's going to be satisfying for them. And I also, like I say, I really love the audience and I Mm. really want to um, make them have a great time. And that medium the way that it's set up now this guy had a particular breakdown was like particularly awful but it sort of came out of what that relationship with the audience is that's this Mm. really combative thing and it's like oh yeah like i'm the boss and i've got the microphone and i'm gonna tell you how it is and i i just couldn't fit into that so and it's not how i view my relationship with the audience it's not the kind of relationship i want to have so Mm. I felt like I I couldn't I just couldn't I, I just couldn't fit in that. And it was a really difficult time actually. It was really upsetting and really sort of um a weird thing to go like I can't 
I can't do this. And Dave came out of a real place of frustration and, um, you know, I was pretty ready to quit. Mm. Um, and then, everyone, you know, Dave went well and pulled me back in and, and now I I do have the platform where I can have that nice, more empathetic, like, relationship with an audience where you can actually look after them and be it's more of a, a feedback type mm. of process where you're kind of you know they're as much a part of it as I am I'm not the boss I'm just sort of carrying the experience so it's it's a different kind of thing and it's a, it's a nice place to be now yeah well it is a really inclusive space to be in you don't feel you're not freaking out like someone's yeah. going to start picking you out and like putting you on the spot in a really awkward way yeah which is what a lot of people who go to comedy shows have that like it's anxiety yeah and that's about trust as well mm. the other thing i love is it goes both ways like i actually love walkouts i love when someone <laughs> walks out of my show because i'm like if you if this is not for you mm. it's so not for you and that's the the night is yours i don't want to hold people hostage yeah so people are having a bad time i always give them the option to leave and it doesn't it doesn't upset me anymore mm. it would have in the past but now i'm just like oh good for you yeah get out of here (laughs) there's no fun yeah yeah Yeah. that's so true and I guess you as you're saying you're catering to a different crowd but a fairly broad crowd really and just like we were saying off air Hannah Gatsby has such a really broad crowd yeah and you've been supporting Hannah very recently and she needs my support she does does need my support yeah Yeah. I'm pretty much making that show yeah most people in Australia wouldn't know her Definitely not beyond here. It's good to support up-and-coming acts, yeah. I say. And she's definitely one to watch. She is. <laughs> and she's well, going places. I mean, you did win a Barry Award before, Hannah. I did. So, I opened I a mean, lot of doors for Hannah you did. Gatsby, basically, <laughs> is what we're saying. Yeah, She owes me a lot. Yeah, yeah. When's your Netflix special? <laughs> uh, probably never. Probably never. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it is one of those shows that... Like, it'll be different to be there because it is a very much experiential... For Hannah's show? No, your show. I've, there is, a, <laughs> like, an interaction. Yeah. Like, I went to Hannah's show too when it was um, Nanette, when it was at yeah. the Comedy Festival, and it was really moving to be part of that and, like, definitely emotive. And then in your in your comedy show, it's like a whole other thing in, in the sense that you're, like, yeah, as you say, bringing... It's, like, kind of an equal relationship in a way yeah like, I feel like we're doing barely anything to contribute but you're like it's definitely not oh, just look, you I, standing up there I have done shows without much of an audience and I'll tell you <laughs> what you? you're doing a lot to contribute oh, right. okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty different when there's no one there yeah the audience is I would say vital okay so yeah. if you're cacking yourself laughing you're contributing in some way yeah yeah okay that's the most important thing <laughs> all right well, I think I did something then um yeah it is really interesting to see that um, now, let's talk a bit, a little bit about your upbringing as well, because I sure. was so interested. I'm from the country, or what people would call the country if they're from the city, um, but it's more coastal, but my other family was cunt, real country. Right. And I feel like there is this kind of openness about people who've grown up in the country and probably don't necessarily like have as much of a filter like I don't have a huge filter <laughs> whenever I meet anyone I really struggle to like lie or pretend yeah and I wondered whether you had a similar kind of way of being yeah I don't know if it's because I'm from the country but I I am very I'm very honest yeah uh often to my detriment <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> and very trusting as well. Yeah. I kind of, I find, yeah, when people are really, 
You take uh, it at face value. Yeah, I'm just like, here's my face, there's yeah. your face. We're talking to each other's faces. Why would I... Read into anything. Yeah, yeah. why would I not... So that I always find it, and that's probably naivety in a way, but I, I always find it very shocking when anyone lies to you, and especially yeah. like in showbiz, that does actually happen a bit. <laughs> and I'm always like, what? That like every time I'm yeah. confused by it. But, um, yeah, I think being from the country, for me, being from the country... Um, because you're in like a, a smaller, it's a smaller group of people and going mm. to school in the country and things, I think is really important. Uh, the most important thing that I got out of that is being surrounded by lots of, lots of different people, actually. Um, different, you know, they're like different socioeconomic kind of, there's, a, there's more of a breadth there mm. rather than, you know, in the city going to like a private school or whatever and you actually get used to... You, you're only used to being around people who are quite similar to yourself in a lot of ways. That's, I mean, that's my experience. Of, mm. I, I feel comfortable with lots of different people. But that's also because I grew up in the country and I'm, I'm quite privileged, really. You know, I'm middle-class kind of family. Um, my, my dad's a country solicitor. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a very fancy person, but, I, you know, I feel comfortable around um, all sorts of different kinds of people and I don't yeah. really... I think that kind of idea of hierarchy is, is flattened out a bit in those kind of country communities. Yeah. Because they're, they're right there. There isn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're kind of like, well, not all of them, but, like, often you'll feel more of an extended family mm. and treat each other that way and, you know, have yeah. the street party and have your you know, barbecue where everyone comes around and... Yeah, and there's, you're, more, you're sort of in close proximity, like the whole, it, sort of everyone, there's not mm, that many people, so everyone's no. sort of, everyone's there. Everyone's, and everyone knows everyone's business. Yeah, and you're not, and there's that real thing of like, well, you're not better than anyone else, yeah. are you? Because you're not, that's the truth, but um, I think sometimes people forget that. They do, they do. It Certainly comedy can help remind them of that. <laughs> <laughs> but could we I'd love to hear more because you said that Dave has these Daveisms, and when I I'd only seen Bossy Bottoms so yeah. I looked back at um one of your Dave shows on Vimeo I think it was and I could see some of the similarities in technique but obviously you yeah you're st- yourself in Bossy Bottom you're not Dave no so there well, is I mean, a difference I am Dave. you are Dave, Dave down. Where do you think you diverge then? Well, we've got very similar bone structure, me and Dave. Um, um, (laughs) Where do we... Well, I guess because Dave's like a parody of hack stand-up. So I was doing stand-up as myself before Mm. that and then Dave was... And I did Dave for a long time. Dave came out of my understanding of stand-up. So he is doing stand-up and because I did him for a long time, I got better at doing stand-up through doing Dave. So now my stand-up, even though I'm myself, there are certain things that I learnt through doing Dave. So mannerisms like things like leaning on the microphone stand, which I never did as myself, and now Mm. I do it all the time because Dave parodied it, but I'm doing it as myself. So the layer of irony is gone and I'm just being a hack. (laughs) So, Which some of that is enjoyable. Other times it's not. But when I first first started doing you know, coming back to doing stand-up as myself, the first few gigs were really weird and quite scary yeah. because it was like I would sort of suddenly be possessed. The other thing that I do, which is a real hacky stand-up thing, is after you say a sentence just to sort of yell um into the microphone, which is there to cover up if people don't laugh. 
Okay, I like, didn't know I that's that. what she said. Um, <laughs> and I do it all the time. It's terrible. But oh well. I'm so going to listen out for that yeah. now at any comedy show. You won't be able to. What a good that one. tip. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, how hilarious. Giving away all the tricks. You are. This is great. Um, so in terms of Bossy Bottom and you're bringing it back for an encore, what was the reception like for you, not just the audience, but then your peers and your reviewers and, you know, how did you feel that it went being yourself and like talking about your life and your family, which mm. isn't the entire content, but <laughs> at, you are like revealing more of yourself presumably in this um, stand-up show than when you were Dave. Yeah, look, it was pretty scary. It was a pretty risky sort of thing because I'd been in this character for so long. And, I, I mean, I say this in the show, like, you know, I'm, if, if it didn't work out, I would be proving the point women aren't <laughs> funny. But <laughs> so there was a, a genuine fear that it's like, yeah. oh, maybe Dave is funnier than I am. And I think Dave is a little bit funnier Oh, I don't I know. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, I mean, it went well. It was. Yeah. It, I'm sure lots of people didn't like it. Um, I don't know what my peers really thought. I'd like, you know, comedians. You'd have to ask them. Um, so I'm sure some people liked it. Some people didn't. But yeah, it was. It felt really risky. But it was really yeah. nice to. Sort, I felt like I had a lot to prove mm. in a way. But you didn't regret it, which no, is the no. main thing, right? I think. I didn't want to keep doing Dave because mm. that felt like I would have gotten stuck into this. I would have gotten stuck in this character and that's not really what I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, I it felt like the scariest thing so I had to do it. Yeah. That was that's, you know, if 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 something's really scary, especially as a performer, you know, what what am I doing it for if not to do the risky scary thing? Yeah. But it really could have it could have gone terribly. Could have been the worst. <laughs> Just like, oh. And I know actually people have said to me since then Oh yes, went to see a show. It was quite, quite trepidatious going. It was quite scared because it was like, oh no, what if, what like the audience yeah. was feeling that same fear as well. Like, what if, what if she's not funny? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I guess relief. Yeah, we've gotten over like that hurdle. Yeah, and I, it's nice bringing it back now because there's a few when I first did the show, it was really just about shaking off Dave and just being like. You know, this show is... I genuinely set out to make a straight stand-up show, just to do stand-up. Mm. Did you jokes. really? I genuinely <laughs> did, did. I was like, I'm just going to do a simple stand-up yeah. show. It's just going to be stand-up. And then I wrote all that stuff and I was like, well, this is boring. And, <laughs> and I couldn't help myself. So yeah. that's, And then as I wrote into it further, I was like, oh, well, now I've got... Okay, well, we've got the... Okay, we've got a time loop. Oh, there's a drone. Um, <laughs> so I... <laughs> It's nice coming back to it, though, because there's some of the ideas in it that uh, have solidified a little more. Mm. So it was just sort of getting it off that first time. So there's a few new ideas that have crystallised since then that'll be in this this return a little bit. Well, that's a bit different. exciting to hear. I wonder, given that you also work in the theatre <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, write... That's how you have to say it the as theater. well. The theatre. The theatre. Uh, whether there is any back and forth or use of different skills or tools in in those and whether you draw on acting and theatre making at all in your comedic shows I just I view it all as pretty much the same thing I think if you're you know comedy stand-up comedy is theatre and theatre it can be 
comedy it's the same sorts of things mm. it's just a different it's just a different framework yeah. it's just a different context but when you're making it i think the same skills are used if and every i think every kind of every comedian every theater maker whatever you know whatever you want to call it like because genres genres bogus anyway it's just made up mm. Um, it's just for you know, it's made up for like so you I say, can like categorize people, yeah. Things. So you can go, oh, we'll put that on next to that thing, and and those things are similar. Mm. But I think if you're, you know, what your aim is, my aim is to have this particular relationship with an audience and communicate particular things in particular ways. So there's mm. things that really tickle me, and I get really excited about. Um, and that's sort of the same in theatre and comedy. It's just you just have to do it in a slightly different way because the audience is expecting something different. So you, if you want to flip their expectations, you just have to know what the expectation is. So in the theatre, yeah. they expect this sort of thing, and mm. so, but it's this for me. It's the flipping that I like. It doesn't really matter what what it's about. Mm. It's like you know, comedians jokes are the same sort of things. Like comedians don't do all their jokes about the same topics but the joke it's the it's the like mechanism of the joke that is that you're going for yeah, that's yeah. fun and exciting so mm. yeah i don't know if that made any sense at yeah, all it does yeah yeah it's, it's all the same yeah so the difference then really bigger is... budgets <laughs> yeah <laughs> more money <laughs> nicer dressing rooms yeah. oh really yep mm. and uh, more staff and you probably don't have to announce yourself no, you don't. That's such a weird... Isn't that a weird thing? Yeah. That, yeah. Really weird. But you just kind of have to do it. Yeah. Although I've seen a few you shows could. lately that are not doing that. Yeah. And it works quite well. They just walk on stage to music and the audience knows to clap. Yeah. I don't think anyone would go, oh, God, who's that? I, you know, I have to check my ticket. <laughs> some people might. Really? Yeah, some people might. Um, let's quickly touch on the content, some of it, because you're... The way or the perspective from which you're coming from is different because of your lived experience being different. Like mm. every comedian presumably has a case coming from another place and often their life is part of what they use or um, where they're coming from at least, the framework with which they're working. Yeah. And I really enjoy the way that you highlight, I guess, the when you talk about straight people and, and like <laughs> straight people culture and I just... I'm not at all offended or, like, <laughs> shocked or, you know, oh, how dare someone group me in with all other straight people. Like, no. Do you well, know what I mean? Well, yeah. It actually – some comedians might put people offside if it was done in a way that was kind of had malice to it, but you're doing it in a way that's, like, actually just generous and, you know – Funny, Stop like it. no, but I actually think that was what was working so well in your show yeah. was because you're talking about like not everyone is going to understand your lived experience, but yeah. you're not alienating no. the audience at all. In fact, you're bringing them in. Yeah, well, I think the, I get a lot of people like, "Wow, oh, you make such political work!" Like, why do you? What what made you choose? Like, I actually had someone ask me a question <laughs> recently. It was like, "What first drew you to being a female comedian?" Oh my god! <laughs> like, that's the funniest. My question biology, I've ever been <laughs> but it's like when when I'm making stuff, I, I never set out to like yeah. make political stuff. Like, it, we only view it as political because it's not the norm that we're used to. Mm. But if I'm making jokes about being queer and you know being a woman, so that's my experience is politicized so then it becomes political comedy yeah but like so so is talking about your wife yeah you know like it's 
so is making jokes about the wife and kid. Like that stuff is political as well. It's just that we don't view it don't, like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not labelled. And it would be a bit weird if I was like, well, I'm, my wife and kids. Well, actually, I have that's. <laughs> but I yes. did that stuff as Dave. So, well, not that Dave's married. Poor thing. No, yeah, but struggling. And yeah, no, no one wants Dave. <laughs> He's a nice guy. He's still got boxer shorts though, which I feel is one definite drawback. Yes, the uh, satin boxer yeah, shorts. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I've got a. <laughs> I have a whole bag of just like Dave's Dude clothes. clothes. Yeah, yeah. That say like party animal on them. Oh wow, like, oh, the best. I love those yeah. boxer shorts. They're really easy to find. That they, they are shops are full of them. Oh really? Full of them. Novelty boxer shorts. Yeah, but yeah, I think that sort of everyone can only like. I don't have a problem with straight male comics yeah. as a as a thing they're fine they're just speaking their truth and their experience it's just that that's not the only truth or Mm. experience and so it's not universal no it's not universal i mean and the idea of something being relatable is hilarious when it's used as this sort of this definite it's like that guy is relatable it's like well the word relatable is by its nature relative, isn't mm, it? Yeah. Like you oh. can't just be point blank relatable. relatable. Yeah. You can be relatable to something. So it's not relatable to me. I find that stuff yeah. incredibly, you know, alienating because mm. it's like, well, you know when your wife, no. No, I don't. Until a couple, until very recently I couldn't even have a wife. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's... Uh, I think it's an interesting thing, but it's also kind of, it's just funny. It's just silly when you go like, "Oh, that's not, that's not, that's not universal." It's yeah. kind of absurd to think that it is. Yeah, it's really interesting about like this idea of like male being universal and women being other, and it's been like in culture for such a long time. And Simone de Beauvoir was, you know, yeah. a big part of highlighting it. Um, many other women, but. Yeah, like when I watched the Dave video and you were talking about like, oh, the clitoris, like, you know, where is it? Oh, you know, it's the ladies, like, fault for (laughs) hiding it and all this stuff. And, God, it brought back some discussions that we've all had about, like, you know where is the where is it? <laughs> but you know also does it exist is it yeah is it there well you know this great <laughs> melbourne female urologist actually dissected cadavers and found it and it's like huge yeah it's oh, not it's just a, yeah it's not the tip of the iceberg it's actually like a real thing that like <laughs> you know not that it's a competition but it pretty much is better <laughs> than you know the other anatomy of <laughs> Well, in you know, like boys versus girls. Boys versus Our girls. generals are better. That. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> we're so much better. No, I'm. <laughs> but I feel like you know, and it goes back to all this horrible stuff about Freud, and you know, yeah, like just really ridiculous things. But that whole idea of like men versus women, I feel like that comes up in comedy so often. Yeah. Not just like the this reductionist idea of biology, but also you know how the sexes interact or don't and how women are and you know how men are and it seems like a really cheap and easy way to do comedy yeah it's a lot of it's a pretty old school trope like a lot of and I think the reason I started doing all the the clitoris stuff Dave was because it was just this trope that you would see all the time and you'd see these guys and you're like they're doing this stuff like oh where's the clitoris and it's really just because (laughs) it's like audiences know that's like a thing that's a joke yeah that they get because i would be watching them i'd be like 
You know you where know. it is. Yeah. You can find it. I know you. I'm sure you can find the clitoris. Yeah. Like, it's not that hard, though, is it? No, it's, like, not even close to difficult. So why are we doing these jokes? There's, yeah. there's a lot of jokes, like a lot of comedy fare that is just kind of... It's just recognisable as a joke. Mm. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's kind of... It's fun to point out those things as being tropes because then you kind of... The audience can kind of go like, oh, yeah... Yeah, that is silly. Yeah. <laughs> so once I did Dave, um, I was on a lineup. There's been some fun things happen when I've been doing Dave on lineups because it would often be I'm the only woman and there would, would be, you know, a bunch of other guys. Yeah. Once I did that act and a couple of acts after me, another comic came on and basically did the same act. Really? It was really, oh my gosh. Yeah, it was really bizarre. But pretty much every time I've done it, they've been some crossovers and I'm not doing that maliciously I'm not going oh I'm gonna really screw this guy up by doing his jokes before he does it yeah make sure I'm first on the list it just happened that (laughs) that they would have the same yeah they would have the same material because I'm doing kind of common uh tropes common material yeah and that's that's what happens when you use that common material. I mean, we all do. Everyone's got, yeah. you know, jokes about, oh, my, my dad said this. Like, I've got yeah. that stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Not everything dad can jokes, be mum completely jokes. original. Yeah. No, I really, like, when you talk about your mum and <laughs> impersonate her in this show, I just, like, thought she was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I've never met her, but I was like, wow, what a cool mum. Oh, uh, she is pretty cool. <laughs> my mum's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the voice you put on is, like, it's, I don't know if that's realistic. It's real. Really? It's real. Yeah, my mum and my sisters all have really high voices. Wow. And um, <laughs> my partner, they're all minuscule as well. Yeah, they're right. like elves. I'm average to tall yeah. height. They but all come up to my shoulders. So any photo with them, it's like my my three daughters. I've got two <laughs> sisters and mum is, is tiny as well. Yeah. So they kind of speak like little birds. They're like little woodland creatures. Yeah, yeah. And... My partner once, we were up, I don't know, I sometimes talk about this in the show, but mm. we were at my family home and um, my sisters were having a conversation in the other room and my partner Kate was like, we were reading the newspaper and she looked up at one point and went, oh, they're talking. I thought it was birds. <laughs> they have been having this conversation the whole time. <laughs> That's how they sound. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um We've run out of time, which is tragic for me. But guess what? You can go to the show. So (laughs) what? Like, and there are tickets left, right? There are tickets left. Yes, but it is selling fast. I'm going to say that because it is now that everyone's heard you speak once more, and I'm sure since people have seen you supporting Hannah Gadsby, they're running out of the door before Hannah even starts. They're like, "Get me a ticket to Bossy Bottom." They'll be like. Actually, you're not allowed phones in Hannah's show, are you? No, you're not. That's Yeah, I noticed that. It's a really interesting development too. Oh, it's great. Yeah. It's really good. Stick it in one of those, like, locked Locked things. things. Well, yeah. they do it at movie premieres. It's pretty do common they? at movie premieres, yeah. Mm. Yeah, we should do that more often. Um, so go along to Bossy Bottom. And what are the dates? Uh, it's on from the 9th to the 14th of April, so it opens next Tuesday and uh, see you next it's Tuesday. It's at the Western, isn't it? It's at the Western Hotel, yep. yeah, and it's on at, I believe it's on at 7pm. That is just so, so easy to it's make. very civilised. Very, very civilised. Yeah, you can have an early dinner, yeah. a late dinner. Oh, it's lovely. It's perfectly placed. 
<laughs> no worries anytime <laughs> I, I will definitely see it again because I'm going to drag my family along because oh, I know great. that they will definitely enjoy it well I'll see you there definitely so thank you Zoe for coming in and congratulations on everything you're doing and your theatre work as well which is clearly also going so well and being nominated for Green Room Awards recently so well, yeah. yeah didn't win but... no I was that last night <laughs> yeah night. yeah but still, you know, you're up there. Yeah. Up there. Well, thank you. Thanks Feeling so much. It. Oh, gosh. I feel so flattered. My pleasure. Zoe Coombs-Ma, she's a comedian and a theatre maker, and she's been joining me for the last half an hour or so to talk about her wonderful co-bossy bottom, which is at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Thank you to my guests today, Ben Eltham, who came in to talk about federal politics, then Emma Shortus from the EU Studies Centre at RMIT, who is absolutely fabulous, and she joined me to talk about uh, US politics, particularly around the release of the Mueller report, although we haven't yet viewed the contents of it uh, in full. We've just had the summation of it by the Attorney-General. And then finally, uh, my last guest there was Zoe Coombs-Ma, a comedian and theatre maker, and she joined me to discuss the art of comedy and her return comedy show, Bossy Bottom, which uh, is now coming up in about a week's time at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Um, Zoe's been supporting Hannah Gadsby, and she also was directing Tom Walker's show this year, so she's been up to quite a bit. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.